so for me i think um this idea of you know i guess uh, what the product in uh, with what later became zest i had so much conviction on it right so i think that was the main pull that um wanted to see that uh, concept come to life i think for me i would say that was the biggest pull that then trumped every pros and con list and everything so i think um the core thesis uh, more or less remain the same the product also i think more or less remain the same i think the there were um some pivots around the strategy so we did realize sort of midway that we also needed to have not just a b2b to c kind of strategy but a b2c strategy as well the first thing i would say it's a marathon and a sprint at the same time so pace yourself finance is all about allocation of money and uh, the difference between developed markets and developing markets is that developed markets are more efficient at allocation of money and de- developing markets are less efficient as you think about strategy of finance what comes to your mind how do you conceptualize that Hello hello. Welcome to the Strategy of Finance podcast where we celebrate the profession and the professionals in the world of finance. We endeavor to unpack their journeys to understand what moves them, get inspired by their triumphs, learn from their experiences and most of all, connect with them at a personal level. In today's episode, I am joined by Priya Sharma, the co-founder, COO and the CFO of Zest Money. Started in 2015 and once a poster child for buy now pay later fintech category in india zest has raised around 134 million from investors like payu ribbit capital corona capital and omidya ventures the company has seen a lot of ups and downs over its 9 year life and announced in december 2023 that they would shut operations in this conversation we dive into priya's journey to start zest money how she approached the dual roles of cfo and coo navigated the good and not so good times and her views on regulations venture capital and diversity this conversation reinforces how our wins make us hero and our losses keep us human both are equally important and present in each journey but the sequence of where it ends defines the whole journey for outsiders Let's end the wait and listen on to learn, grow, and inspire. Priya, welcome to the show. Really glad to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, and uh, wish you a very happy new year. Same to you. Thank you. Why don't we kick it off with a very quick game? I'm going to throw yeah. you uh, uh, one words, and all I want are immediate reactions. Okay. okay should be should be simple new york um new york very personal amazing city i love i one of my favorite cities yeah london um again very personal amazing city almost home to me zest money very very personal my first entrepreneurial stint uh, loved it and uh, yeah <laughs> lizzy you know been my partner and uh, business partner for 12 years so someone you know i deeply respect and someone i've uh, shared a lot of highs and and also some lows <laughs> uh phone pay uh great company you know i think they have done a brilliant job uh in payments definitely and uh, yeah i think i think they they have executed very well investors investors yes i think uh, i think they are essential but i think managing them is also essential and it's an 
it's an art and not a science. Great. Um, is it true, once a founder, always a founder? Um, yes, I think in terms of mentality, yes. Uh, you do want to always, uh, you know, have your own take on things. Um, you want to, uh, you know, have a lot more ownership. Um, even if you are, let's say, partnering with someone, and I'm definitely in that phase where I'm thinking about, you know, what to do next, and I'm definitely looking at various options. And if I look to, you know, even if I if I'm evaluate, evaluating a job, for example, then I think it is about partnership. The mentality changes from, uh, okay, you know, what is my role and what is the company. And now I, when I think of it, it's more of a partnership kind of an approach. And I think maybe that's the founder kind of mentality that, okay, uh, I am coming in. What do I bring to the table? What do I, you know, what does the other person bring to the table, whether this can be a long-term thing or not, versus if you're, you know, evaluating it just as a job, then you're always thinking, okay, you know, what do I get out of this? What will my next job be out, out of this, right? So... From that perspective, yes, um, yeah, maybe that mentality changes, and uh, for me, it means partnership approach versus not necessarily creating something from scratch all the time. I don't, I don't know if I will do that right now. I don't know. I'm still thinking. And so, can one nurture that kind of a partnership approach? Does it evolve naturally? Should one do anything in particular to arrive at that moment to think about? hey, am I ready for being a founder in that kind of a partnership mindset more so? Um, would love to understand your views on that. And as a conduit to it, if you want to use your background, how you grew up in the world of finance and weave in kind of that partnership mentality, I think that would be amazing. Yeah, I, th I think this is an interesting question because it also depends from person to person. I think... Uh, yeah, and maybe my background and my evolution into a founder has led to this kind of approach of partnership. Um, so, you know, my first job was uh, software engineering. I am an engineer by training. I went to IIT and um, started much like any Indian here in, you know, the early, I guess, uh, 90, you know, 20, 2001, uh, my first job. And uh, it was very much kind of learning the MNC way, lear you know, learning things. And then I slowly started finding my ground and figuring out what I liked. And I liked business, so I gravitated towards more consulting roles. Then I got fascinated by finance, and then I gravitated to finance and investment banking. And uh, that's when I realized that I, you know, wanted to combine finance and technology and uh, do something more creative. And that's how my startup, you know, journey started. So I think for me, the reason I think about it as a partnership, because um, especially in the context of a tech uh, ecosystem, for example, um, I am no longer a techie or, a, you know, I, I was a techie, but I am not a practicing, you know, software person. So for me, therefore, if I were to, let's say, create something, then I am always clear that it has to be in partnership with someone who brings uh, some of those skills, for example. So maybe it is coming from there. Um, and it's also a recognition of the fact that uh, there are things that I know uh, that I can do well. I, you know, I'm good at conceptualizing product, business ideas, uh, but then there are other things that I don't know. So maybe if, I think this is more specific to me. Maybe 
other people and you know there are lots of solo founders as well uh and i i think for me i liked uh, having uh we were three co-founders in zest um so i think definitely having another person uh maybe not three or four but at least another co-founder is is definitely something uh that is helpful because i think entrepreneurship is a very um it's a long journey um and and solo entrepreneurship i think is is tough i, I didn't go through that um so for me therefore yeah so maybe that's why this partnership approach and this idea of partnership um and i also think that uh, in a startup there are many things that uh, need to come together and uh, it is never you know no one person is doing everything uh, so even you know if i look at zest then obviously we had the idea and we had the concept and you know uh, we were the initial sort of seed behind it but then whatever it became uh, later on and a lot of the success it was a team team effort it's always a team effort right so in that sense i think that that partnership approach is important and uh, for me yeah uh, i i think yeah that's maybe one of the biggest takeaways from zest for me is that uh, even our overall strategy was based on partnerships so it was a b2b to c strategy um and you know we we were solving a customer problem but then we ended up becoming a platform um and uh, i think most successful startups uh, you know if you look at the largest ones google obviously you know all of them are pl- platforms so if you look at plat if you want to build a platform then i think you need to have uh, a partnership kind of an approach um just a product centric mindset on its own uh even that requires partnership right so even if you have a saas product or whatever internally you have to partner teams have to work together so yeah so maybe this this has uh, this has come out in you know on the top of my head but uh, yeah more i speak about this i think it makes sense that ultimately it is about partnership awesome i want to take you back to your early years uh, before you took up engineering was there a choice for you to say hey do you want to become an engineer do you want to go on the business side you know or was it just natural that hey you know you gravitated towards engineering at first uh so i come from a very you know middle class family my parents are teachers my father um has been an educator so he was you know principal of the school that i was in my mom was a teacher she was my class teacher um i was you know i had to be a model student <laughs> in that sense and uh, yeah and in those times i think uh, given you know my my parents background and um, my rest of my family they are also doctors and engineers so business was never a conversation in our family there was no discussion of business it was a completely alien world for us uh, so the only real discussion and that was also like a 5 minute discussion where it was you know doctor or engineer and for me i think i uh uh i i preferred engineering in the sense that i prefer maths uh, and physics over biology so it wasn't even you know engineering what does it mean uh do i like tinkering with machines and things like that so it's 
it's very i think it's very common in in people of our you know generation to have gone through that so yeah it was uh, it was just okay you don't want to do biology so therefore you know you take physics and chemistry maths and therefore the options are engineering and then you know okay so what does engineering mean engineering basically means uh, going through these uh, entrance examinations and that's what engineering meant to us right so it's very it's very bizarre and uh, it's it's weird but it, i think this is how our generation grew up uh, at that time we were in uh, kanpur which is a small town but obviously there is iit kanpur so iit kanpur was always you know a huge influence uh, and when i was in school i used to play basketball and i remember going to iit kanpur and you know playing there so it just happened that way and so yeah so giving the entrance exam was the goal not not necessarily becoming an engineer and um, the entrance exam obviously very tough but i managed to get in my rank wasn't you know great uh, so i didn't get into iit kanpur i i tried my best but then i got into iit phu which is a, a very different uh, college in in banaras and uh yeah and when you get there then you're like okay now what uh and and that's when the software boom was happening uh, so i joined in 97 uh and uh, that's when infosys uh, i think they were ipoing or ipoed i think so you know the software boom was happening so that's it you know there was engineering basically meant software suddenly and uh, I, i'm sure you know this that at that time it was you know the career options were okay you go into software and join infosys or you uh, give your you know uh, gmat and or you give your uh, you know gate or whatever and you and you go abroad right so for me yeah it's it's engineering was was more i guess entrance exam and iit rather than becoming an engineer but then then in the end yeah i chose software engineering i joined sapient um which was a us company and they were just setting up their offices in gurgaon so i was uh, one of their um, early cohorts uh, let's call it and uh, really enjoyed it so that's that was my introduction to work life and um, you know i i still remember the at the induction they used to give this book uh, called built to last and uh, that's a great book i'm sure you've heard about it or read it and frankly i think that was my introduction to business um, because that's when you know they talk about case studies of nokia and motorola and all you know ibm versus microsoft and all of these companies and before that there was no no discussion of business or business strategy or uh finance so i didn't know at all i didn't know what npv was till i went to my mba so but ha huh, i would say my introduction to business strategy the concept of strategy was through that book um and through my job and you know and and my early job at that time uh, this company they were very famous because they were part of the dot com uh, boom and then later bust and they were developing websites for us you know companies at the time so large uh, corporations who were suddenly uh, getting on to the internet so that was my earliest introduction to the internet at that time and e-commerce uh, so my first job was developing a website for staples uh, which is a large you know office supplies company in the us and they were doing their international site so yeah so this was back in 2001 that's that's sort of how and and early internet early you know software development we ourselves were not buying anything off the internet right so it was very bizarre to build these websites for 
people sitting in Germany and uh, understand all of these things. So that was my introduction to business. That's actually when I started to understand uh, consumer journeys and all of these things. So it was more of a product introduction. I mean, these days that would that role would be called product. At that time, it was just pure engineering. Um, and uh, business introduction came much later. And in a way, um, that was one of the reasons why I pursued my MBA because I over you know as i started gravitating towards more um, business analyst type of roles and then later on from sapient i moved to the us and from there i joined deloitte uh, consulting where you know everyone around me was an mba so for me yeah so then the mba kira got into me so uh, and uh, then i just happened to apply to london business school and i got through so that so then obviously london you know lbs was my formal business uh, introduction but uh, my early career and in my childhood, so, huh, definitely there was no talk of business. It was always, you know, science, physics, chemistry, maths, and uh, just doing well at school and, you know, things like that. Very interesting. Take us through the journey from LBS to then doing investment banking and then kind of landing the role that ultimately wedged you into founding Zest Money. Yeah. So, yeah, I got into LBS in 2006 and um, London uh, obviously is a big financial center. And um, so everyone that and 2006 was again a boom year for finance, if you remember. Uh, so everyone was talking about how they, you know, wanted to get into the big banks and things like that. So uh, I also got swept by that sort of emotion and thought, you know, I might as well use this time to see what investment banking is all about and even at least understand you know what it is and so yeah so i just dived deep into the world of uh, investment banking and finance and got an internship with uh, merrill lynch in 2007 and uh, midway through my internship is when the world started changing so uh, the first uh, hedge funds of their turns i think they, they went under and then there was sudden sort of uh, doom and gloom and um, so I thought okay wow this is an interesting time uh, to get into investment banking and so I graduated 2008 and joined uh, Merrill Lynch full-time in May and uh, then by August September we all know what happened so Lehman you know went under and the same weekend uh, Merrill Lynch was was bought by Bank of America so I was really living through that um, we used to be called into our into our MD's office and told that, you know, you're safe for now for this quarter and, <laughs> you know, we'll see what happens next quarter. So it was interesting. It was a very different uh, shift for me uh, being in investment banking. I was in M&A advisory um, and, uh, yeah, just this idea that, you know, you could go in and advise companies on what they should be doing in terms of, their long-term strategy around be it capital raising be it uh, acquiring companies you know or divest divesting companies and things like that so i was very fascinated by some of those aspects and i was focusing on technology media telecom companies so as a result of that you know i was able to study again these companies um, and if you remember my first you know projects were in the e-commerce uh, domain and then I slowly started seeing different companies who were uh, going public or, you know, these were companies that we were then trying to raise money for and things like that. So I really saw that evolution, right? So 
so then I started and I, you know, did a few deals uh, where I got the chance to interact with founders. And I said, you know what, I understand tech. My first first job was uh, in this uh, sort of domain. And why don't I actually be part of uh, a company like that rather than um, being in investment banking, which I also started realizing wasn't my nature. And uh, it's a very uh, broking kind of mindset. Um I always, you know, joke and say that that famous line in this movie that says "party or your broker," <laughs> and <laughs> so you—it's a different mindset. And I—I um, I just, you know, thought that the being on the company side would be more creative, and uh, that's how then I started to think about uh, finding startups in London. So I was in London at the time, and London was definitely emerging as uh, the sort of tech startup you know hub in uh, uk and, and europe and that's how i found this company called wonga uh, they had started in 2007 um, they their vision and mission was to disrupt financial services and uh, they were one of the first uh, financial services app in the uk and they had a very successful uh, product, which was a you know short-term lending product where money was in your bank account within 15 minutes. So they had revolutionized um, you know digital lending in UK and Europe. And when I joined them, they were quite big and very popular, and they were looking to expand into uh, many different markets, and they were looking to you know get into uh, new products and you know expand their sort of product lines. And so I joined them in their I guess corporate strategy, international development kind of team. And my boss said to me, "Oh, you." Indian and uh, you know we're looking at India and uh, we just hired this girl uh, she's she's her name is Lizzie uh, and uh, she's in India right now and maybe you both of you can go to India and see if it makes sense for us to launch in India so that's how I met Lizzie uh, who later on you know became my co-founder and uh, very quickly we became Lizzie and I became the Wonga India team uh, ironically, she was based here in Mumbai. I was based in London and uh, we used to commute and shuttle. So for me, it was the best of both worlds. But uh, it really opened my eyes, you know, so because um, it was a blank canvas. So our remit was uh, go develop a product and a business idea for India, effectively. That was the, the you know, brief given to us. And uh, we spent our time... Uh, doing a lot of market research and understanding the market. And this was, you know, end of 2011, early 2012. Yeah. And uh, obviously, we started zooming in, you know, so what's happening in financial services and then what's happening within credit. So financial services and also credit, everything was very branch-based, very um, physical, paper-based. You know, we understood the banking and the uh, NBFC sector, you know, that was very stable and all of that. But yeah, there was hardly any digital transactions. Payments were very nascent at that time. Uh, then we also started recognizing that e-commerce, uh, Flipkart uh, obviously had, uh, I think at that time they had their massive, you know, round tiger, I think, and they were on the uh, upswing. And the first wave of e-commerce had, you know, startups had started coming. So we started recognizing that payments was, was definitely, there was a lot of friction. A lot of the e-commerce growth was happening as a result of uh, COD, uh, cash and delivery. Um, and, uh, and then credit was completely non-existent. Uh, so we started studying the credit cards, you know, what's what's happening here. Then we studied Bajaj Finance. Um, so, yeah, so we I think that uh, was a very good time for us. It was a lot of fun. 
we then developed a kind of a business plan as you know that was our role basically and uh, we set out to actually execute so that business plan was roughly uh, the product was actually what later on became zest so it was called pay later that company wonga actually owned the pay later you know uh, brand and um, so regulatory changes were happening in the uk and uh, so you know they they basically decided to put all their big expansion you know projects on hold and that's when then lizzie and i we we were you know obviously very disappointed because we had done so much work on this and we were so excited with the idea and so there then was a gap of about you know a year and a half so i then you know did i took up another role within the company i um, started doing investments uh, for them and i was investing in small you know european fintechs and uh, and then lizzie and i used to keep in touch and she left meanwhile so she was like you know i want to be here in india and i wasn't so sure so that i think was an interesting you know period for us where we knew we had this idea we knew um, we had the business plan and we we knew what needed to happen but we ourselves were not ready to take that plunge and that risk and i think we finally and i think that year this was 2014 where there was a lot of internal struggle uh, you know for me personally and i think also for lizzie and um, beginning of 2015 is when you know i i was here in mumbai for something and i met lizzie and i said look you know we have this idea uh, i think this product is still you know no one's done it and uh, by that time the paytm you know big funding had happened so fintech had suddenly arrived in india everyone was talking about fintech people used to contact you know both of us saying you know you were doing something you are in fintech so fintech before that fintech wasn't even a word right so 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 suddenly we felt okay you know what like we know this we know what to do and uh, let's do this so i think it took us some time to take the plunge because uh, we knew that this was a big undertaking it wasn't something that you could uh, just uh, get you know it wasn't going to be a bootstrapped uh endeavor we we knew that from the beginning so so that is how we then formed zest uh so yeah we just turned around and uh, and lizzie you know if you if you met her if you know her so um yeah i said let's do it and then the next day she turned around and said yeah let's do it we're doing it and then you know by the evening she's telling everyone that oh you know we are a new startup and um, we are doing this and we are going to be live in you know two months and all that so uh, so then yeah we 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 as i said we realized it wasn't um, going to be bootstrapped so we needed to raise funding and it, you know it was licensing required and you know you had to refine the business plan according to a startup uh plan versus earlier it was part of a large corporate so we did that and um that is how we then came up with the partnership model especially with the banks and the ndfcs because we realized that in on day one getting all the licenses will take a lot of time and so we'd rather focus on the product and the idea rather than the licensing and then the license and all that will will come over time and then over time we'll build balance sheet and you know we had the full plan basically so we went to san francisco and uh we met uh, ribbit capital who we knew um from before and they just yeah gave us our our first check and that was it so that's how we started zest and then meanwhile then you know i was like okay we need we need to 
find a team and uh, so we found ashish uh, who was also in wonga uh, and we had been in touch and uh, although lizzy and i you know were were not working with him directly but uh, he was part of the the tech team in in central london and so we said okay you're indian and we, you 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 know you know this product because uh, he was hired to actually build pay later for monga which was going to be a global product it wasn't just an india product and uh, we lizzie and i are doing this and why don't you join us and uh, so he took a little bit of convincing but uh, finally he agreed and uh, that's how we started so yeah we we just basically packed our bags and moved here uh, to bangalore and that's it that that's how zest was born <laughs> amazing uh, what a coincidence you know always uh, it seems from outside that these startups uh, every single one of them is very meticulously thought out and planned for years and years and years and then somebody starts it but uh, it, it's interesting that you've done all the work as a corporate employee in some yeah. ways yeah and then you know it ended up being uh, being kind of your babies um Very yeah. interesting. What took you personally to take that plunge? Because it was a lot, right? Moving from London to Bangalore, doing a different kind of a role altogether. Yeah. Um, also, there were regulatory challenges in the London sort of fintech ecosystem. But I'm sure Wonga was doing well, and it was yeah. an established position. You could have continued to grow there. What What took you to convince yourself? to yeah. then take the plunge. Yeah, it was an interesting decision. I I really as I said I struggled with it uh, for even almost a year actually. Um and um I was looking at other roles in London. So fintech in London was taking off definitely, right? So uh, I think Revolut at that time had just got funded and which obviously now they have they are the poster child of fintech in in London. So some of those companies were just starting and so for me I think um this idea of you know i guess uh, what the product in uh, with what later became zest i had so much conviction on it right so i think that was the main pull that um wanted to see that uh, concept come to life i think for me i would say that was the biggest pull that then trumped every pros and cons list and everything so it was just this i couldn't get rid of that uh, concept in my head um and i i tried so you know because it wasn't an easy decision from many perspectives right so uh, i would go to interviews and then you know people would then ask me what were you doing and so i would describe this this stint of mine where i had done this project and all of that and that's when my eyes would light up and people would inevitably ask me like why won't you do it yourself so a lot of people just asking me why won't you do it my friends were like okay if you really think you know this is the thing then you should do it so i think i was getting that i was just scared of it uh, scared of moving also i was um i had not been in india for nearly 13 years at that time i had actually never worked in india um throughout my life right like i'd always done project work for other um, countries so yeah so it was a big decision but i think it was the concept and then i think both lizzy and i came to the point that okay we we've got to give it a shot like we've got to try and um, if we don't try then yeah i don't know how i would feel you know 
so it was yeah extreme <laughs> conviction in the idea that was the final pull and um that made me uh, drop everything and move basically very interesting um there if i think about it there couldn't be a better person who's closer to both finance as well as strategy right you were uh, of course a co-founder cfo and coo of a fintech startup right so kind of money is a raw material in fintech startups and you were kind of dealing with that while managing the the finances of your own company and so on as you think about strategy of finance what comes to your mind how do you conceptualize that yeah so um so obviously i think it's a it's a big term and a uh, um, lot of you know things fall into it um uh, but as we thought about it in in the context of zest and in the context of lending i'd say there there are two main things one is the concept of risk and reward which is i in my opinion the fundamental of or you know finance theory or modern finance theory right um so as it relates to uh, lending in india one of the biggest uh, thesis that we had going in was that Uh, no one was doing risk based pricing uh, and that is why lending in india is so restricted is that um, most people uh, you know banks and nbfcs due to various reasons maybe due to uh, regulatory perception it's actually not really uh, written in there's no price caps and you know things like that but there is a perception around uh, the level of pricing uh, especially when it as it relates to lending products and um that level of pricing if you compare with the developed world uh is actually quite low uh especially when you take into account the inherent risk um that we have you know there is sovereign risk there is you know lots of risk and and customer risk so i generally think that there is a mismatch in um pricing of risk in india and that is one of the big reasons why credit is so under penetrated versus in the west where you know there is a price for everything and they are a very uh, they are obviously a capitalist you know society but they are to the core they are capitalist here in india when it comes to regulated you know financial institutions obviously there's a there's so called gray market where the pricing and everyone talks about it 3% a month 4% a month and you know money lending and all that but and again if you look at the capitalist you know free markets theory then the reason why those people are able to charge that is because there are people who are willing to pay that right so mar- free markets are already at work but when it comes to regulated institutions definitely i feel that uh, most people tend to be in in the sort of sub 40% you know kind of range uh, and in fact banks are in this you know maybe 22 to 26% kind of a range um and then if you layer that with the risk the customer risk and all the you know cost of capital here is very high as compared to the us whereas um so yeah so if you compare us pricing and risk to india pricing and risk on a consumer credit I, it just never matched up so fundamentally i thought you know that was an interesting uh point and uh, we did uh, try to do risk based pricing that was one of our key thesis um the other key thesis um 
as it relates to customer uh, and especially in lending was that uh, again because the risk reward spectrum just doesn't add up for the institutional lenders here therefore they are forced to take less risk right so if you if you know that your pricing is capped then you will take very less risk and therefore as a result of that the types of people that you lend to are what you would call super prime and there's very little you know credit that is available to people who actually need credit so so fundamentally i thought that was actually the the genesis or one of the overarching thoughts we had behind zest is that um, if you are able to somehow change that uh, you know then you can slowly begin to solve for uh, access to credit uh, to people who actually need it um so we tried i i don't think we succeeded i think uh, i think there's a lot of work to be done in this area um and uh, i hope that you know this changes in in the future so as it relates to strategy of finance i think this is to me a sort of one on one you know correlation between finance theory and how it related to us suggest um the second thing obviously is around capital structure so again here you know in india we have a high uh cost of capital um uh, using my sort of investment banking you know hat on i also try to understand why the cost of capital is, is so high so yeah i think it's about finance is all about um allocation of money and uh, the difference between developed markets and developing markets is that developed markets are more efficient at allocation of money and de- developing markets are less efficient at allocation of money and as you become more efficient then the overall cost of capital you know goes down uh, so yeah so in our in my opinion you know on a macro level if we are to invest in uh, developing our bond markets for example so equity markets has been doing well uh, especially the last few years and everyone's talking about it but if we should also invest in developing the bond market because my theory is that then your large corporates are able to access the bond markets so so large corporates are able to access or raise capital from the equity markets right because the, those are now fairly uh, robust and a lot of um, institutional and retail money is going there uh but uh, very large corporates maybe are able to access the bond markets but your slightly tier you know 2 or tier 3 are not able to access the bond market so as a result of that they are very reliant on uh, bank uh, you know credit private placements and therefore then the bank credit doesn't necessarily ne- reach the sme and the micro sme and um, you know the the also the uh, lower end end of spectrum of the consumer credit right so that's another point i think uh, that as a as a society i hope that you know we are we are able to develop uh, our bond markets and basically start allocating debt capital uh, much better um as it relates to zest so we were very conscious of that from day one that you know raising a large balance sheet is not going to be that easy in india and uh, you know as a lending startup you do need to have a balance sheet strategy and in a way that is why from day one we focused uh, a lot more on this kind of platform approach uh, where we would uh, work with um, you know large lenders who themselves uh, have a lower cost of capital than we would ever have on our own right like the amount of funding that we would need to um, get that level of uh, cost of capital it would take 
decades, <laughs> not years. And so we we realized very early on that having this kind of platform or partnership approach was important rather than focusing on our own balance sheet. Although maybe, I mean, in the last year or so, you know, maybe that strategy didn't, you know, work for us too well. And we always, in as part of our business plan, we always had the hybrid approach that, you know, we should have our own balance sheet as well and we'll grow it over time. Uh, but I think that, you know, that pendulum swung too quickly on the, on the other side. And even from a regulatory standpoint, uh, suddenly the regulator uh, seems to, you know, prefer the balance sheet side of things. So, um, but I think, you know, we, we would not have been able to reach the scale that we did had we gone with the strategy of building our own balance sheet from day one. Because I think inherently... Uh, building a balance sheet in India is is uh, tough and it takes a long time, and uh, and then that you know time factor doesn't work well with the shareholder base that we had, which is the VC you know uh, models, right? So so yeah, so I think these are the two sort of finance theories uh, that uh, I took and uh, we thought about it deeply and we you know tried to play around with it <laughs> and. Uh, uh, implement that in our business model and our business strategy. Uh, I don't know how successful we were, but I, I, I like that as a finance theorist of um, risk and reward and capital allocation and cost of capital. No, um, I think very valid points, Priya. And uh, what I really like is your dissection of the inefficiencies um, around sort of availability of finance in India versus the developed world makes a ton of sense. I'm curious to know, um, at Zest Money, did you have to go through some product pivots to arrive at what ended up kind of scaling or uh, was um, was it pretty straightforward in terms of the core thesis of course remained the same and then also the product that you first launched that kind of uh, you know hit the nail on the head so i think um the core thesis uh, more or less remained the same uh, the product also i think more or less remained the same i think the, there were um some pivots around the strategy so we did realize sort of midway that we also needed to have not just a b2b to c kind of strategy but a b2c strategy as well um so we started uh, you know and that's actually how we also started um our app strategy so when we first launched we were we didn't have an app uh, this is also because, you know, we launched uh, in January 2016 is when we launched. Um, and at that time, the construct was very much around which what is now called as embedded finance, right? Uh, that we are on the checkout, the customer will find us on checkout and uh, specifically online. And that is when the customer sort of interacts with us. But we didn't have, we won't follow it up with our own app and things like that. So we remained very, very embedded, actually. Uh, and it's only uh, later, later down the years, you know, maybe 2019 onwards, 2020 onwards is when we started having our own app. And that's also when uh, a lot of the app first fintechs, you know, started coming around and this whole movement towards Mao and Dao and all that, right? So, so I think that was one big product pivot and also a strategy pivot. Um, the other thing, um, which I wouldn't call it a pivot, but it was, I never imagined that we would grow so much in offline. Like when we first started, uh, it was always an online, you know, thing for us. We imagined ourselves 
to be online and in a way you know given at that time the fintechs that we had seen were people like uh, paypal for example and you know um, none of them had an offline strategy at that time um so for us i would say offline was a completely different ball game um and uh, it was a pivotal moment for us um we went offline i mean we were trying offline here and there uh, early on because definitely online also had its challenges in the sense that um merchants were very concentrated whereas offline is completely the opposite where it's very very fragmented um so offline was a big big uh, in fact it was a big bet for us that we made uh, post covid um and the offline product was also quite interesting it was uh, again qr code led uh, which was inspired by the upi you know a revolution that was happening at that time but we were one of the first uh, people to have a credit uh, journey on qr code Uh, so that was another kind of product uh, i would say consumer facing product innovation that we did um so yeah we did evolve with the market and with the time but um, largely the thesis remained the same and we were true i would say you know we were true to our uh, vision and uh, what started happening was that uh, there you know we were one of the only ones within the fintech ecosystem who were so focused on point of sale or checkout financing as it's called uh versus there were many others uh who were purely on the uh digital loan or personal loan effectively and uh pause or checkout financing is tough it's a tough you know business because it's uh, it's got the pros and cons of of payments and credit so you've got to build the distribution you've got to invest in you know having those merchant relationships and especially as we moved offline uh, we really you know felt that that you had to uh, invest a lot in 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 distribution and building those uh, merchant relationships but then at the same time it also helped uh, build our brand so suddenly we were everywhere and you know people would go to some you know place and be like oh you know i saw zest on such and such merchant so it really helped us in certain ways um were but yes it was definitely expensive payments is expensive and uh, and then obviously payments and credit we were bajaj had done it obviously but they had done it um with a very people first approach so they would put their agents in the store and you know things like that and we were obviously trying to do it completely differently through uh, tech you know product and app basically yeah as a fast growing startup i am sure from every single vector or a stakeholder that you might have and then you know consumers in general you are thrown a certain idea hey priya you should do this you know you should do that or here is an opportunity how do you remain in the lane so as to say and not get distracted by doing too much too soon um or how do you choose when to add act 2 act 3 act 4 Yeah it's a tough one um i think definitely we had got to the point where people were coming with ideas team used to come with ideas why aren't we doing this and such and such has done this and we should be doing this and that so there we definitely used to have a lot of firstly healthy debates around what we should be doing what we shouldn't be doing 
um and uh, in some cases actually we did do too much uh, you know and then some of the teams were definitely spread too thin uh, but at the same time yeah i we did say no to a lot of things and then then as i said as i said we tried to remain true to our vision right so uh for good or for bad we would always go back and say you know we're solving for credit for for example and we would we would come back to that and say we're solving for credit so if if it's not around credit then uh maybe we don't do it so and then the other thing that we started looking at was insurance so then we said okay we do insurance but then insurance is also around credit um so some of these anchors we definitely started using and uh, then there was a point um where you know people like banks used to come and say you know why don't you do this for us and why don't you do that for us and um uh, become a sort of a service provider for us so those things again we tried to say no actually we are a product company and we would if we were to so we would take the inputs and actually some of our new product lines or some of the new things that we did later on the line were uh, linked to that in the sense that we took that feedback and said okay there is a need for this and let's uh, take that back and see how we can play this better maybe some of those things uh, you know we could have done faster for example right so i think the way to do this is that um, take ideas take feedback and then um, go back to yourselves and you know in your core team and say okay but okay these are things we can do these are things we can't do so some are complete you know uh, throw out or not for now or later and then within that you say okay these are the ones so for example this service provider angle right uh, we we tried and we were thinking on those lines that we could come up with a sort of a saas you know product line because for the lenders um which we actually could have done and maybe we were uh, not as agile on that or but we also recognize that it's a very long sales cycle for a consumer company to suddenly become saas you know you have to invest in it you have to have different teams and things like that so it was also not that easy for us to execute overnight so these are challenges i think i don't i don't necessarily have the right idea or answer for this um, <clears throat> but ha huh, i think generally startups like as a founder you always feel that how can you be faster so i always think okay you know we could have done done that faster and maybe my decision making wasn't fast enough or something like that right so i think those uh those things as a founder definitely i would say that yeah maybe keep the decision making fast don't uh, dwell on it too much or say yes or no quickly and um you know if the teams are getting spread too thin then definitely cut down on it and not sort of persevere on the same path so but yeah i think it's easy to get distracted and it's easy to expand very quickly <laughs> in this market you were a first time cfo and coo without any direct operational experience so as to say how did you approach it yeah it was um So I think for I always approached it as a co-founder first um so both of these roles for me and this was also how the three of us divided uh, our roles uh so we all three of us were first time founders uh I would say Ashish you know given he was on the tech side so he had been a technologist and in a way you know he was CTO and even if he was not at Zest he would have been CTO right so um so I think he was between the three of us he was the one who was uh, 
doing or was in in his domain whereas lizzie and i were definitely uh doing a lot of the uh, business things and thrown you know both of us were playing ceo and uh, cfo ceo for first time so i would say yeah keeping the founder mindset uh, was important for the three of us all the time um then for me i saw cfo and ceo role um so lot lot of the departments rolled into me so i would look at it on a per uh, function or department you know way uh, when you start a company then obviously there is no function or there is no department so so the cfo or ceo doesn't mean anything for you know couple of years at least right so then you just have one person for accounts so i had you know one person for accounts and i just made sure that uh, i was asking the right questions and you know 2 plus 2 was adding up to 4 uh, but then as we grew then then it became about sort of identifying and separating the functions and so keeping the functional hat on uh, was kind of uh, step one as we grew uh so creating so a lot was about creating the function so separating you know credit risk um and credit risk was always an in- important one for us so it was always a function from day one but sort of growing that function right and then 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 developing collections around that then customer experience was a function so though and then the overall ceo role i always saw as a connector because i you know had the product mindset right so i would always um be able to see what the tech and the product guys were doing and where it was sort of falling apart on the on the customer side so not everything is automated or built on day one so uh, there is always a handoff between product and and ops so i started seeing the ceo role initially as a sort of a connector and uh, you know the two of you need to talk to each other and make sure this kind of happens right and the role in sort of phase 2 of the startup journey is that um, how do you move uh, from uh, how do you productize a lot of the customer experience and uh, create efficiencies and make sure that things are you know uh, getting built into the product so that the operations are stable phase 3 is when it's about uh, on the ceo side i started thinking more about okay uh, what like is the revenue piece um, you know getting uh, imbibed into the company the metrics you know what are the metrics you look at um, running yeah a lot of metric driven and you know creating creating those kind of uh, uh, boundaries around them CFO was again yeah so as I said initially it was just you know accountant thing and getting through the audits and making sure that um, we are able to sort of you know sustain ourselves uh, for me the CFO role I always saw it personally as a more strategic role so I always owned the business plan um, so you know I always was and also given my background I was more interested in the business plan I was more interested in in the P&L um, and uh, the accounting like day to day stuff i definitely was able to uh, build a team over time it didn't happen you know initially but it bu- built the team and um, and then yeah i always focused on fundraising and all of those pieces so um but definitely i think it it both the roles towards the end was quite a lot like i had almost you know maybe 12 or 13 uh, function heads rolling into me and it was uh, it was definitely quite a lot um 
the reason uh, i was able to do it is because uh, operations within a fintech is also very linked to financials or or my or um, movement of money right so a lot of our issues were around or oh, this uh, you know loan didn't get sanctioned or whatever so it's about money movement it's um, and um, but yeah i did did become quite a lot and you know maybe it was um, maybe we should have split the roles and maybe we could have got some someone as well externally um but uh, i think it evolves i think building the right team is important so definitely on the finance side um you know we were able to hire uh, quite a good a good team uh, so finance function you know i had a one down who later on you know was the cfo of zest um and um, he then built the team around him uh, on the ceo side it still was you know quite a few different functions uh, for the longest time and then we got mandar um, to then consolidate you know quite a few functions so yeah so i think as a founder you do have to constantly evaluate uh, functions so initially it, it it's all sort of one you know 10 people team or whatever and functions don't matter but from sort of 30 people onwards you you start evolving into functions and we were yeah always looking at org design and always looking at functions uh and always looking at then the functional head you know do we need to collapse few can we collapse few things into this person that person you know things like that um yeah i mean i learned on the job i i don't know if i did a great job of it uh remains to be seen or you know <laughs> but a uh, lot of learnings and definitely you have to uh, constantly keep thinking about what is not working and how do you fix it so i think that was kind of the um Uh, yardstick we used, and uh, and then at the same time you know that you know you have certain constraints in uh, that um, you uh, you know the business is only this much, or and then the other thing is how do you go from you know that the business is supposed to grow from X to Y, uh, so how do you plan for that? You can't over plan for it because then you need invest too much, then you'll invest too much and it might not happen. uh but if you don't plan for it then it's going to break so yeah i think there is always that balancing act um operations and finance always sort of lag behind a little bit or everything sort of lags behind always a little bit in startups i don't think anyone can say that you know they're completely uh ready for the growth and the challenges that are going to come up so you have to constantly be on uh, top of things <laughs> how do you know that you need to hire for a role is it kind of when need arises is it when you know you you're looking ahead and saying okay this is kind of where we are going to be or this is kind of what we need to do and then kind of hire in advance how did you think about kind of hiring for a particular role especially senior ones yeah definitely mix of both um but i would say the easiest place to start is to say um among the current you know people that you have can they take over something right so let's say for example you know uh, when we were looking at offline so our first port of call was definitely to look at you know who within us can sort of lead this and uh, take it from 0 to 1 effectively right so i think that's always the better way that you um, move someone internally to do the 0 to 1 and uh, then ha huh, when it comes from sort of 1 to 5 or whatever then we have to assess whether this person or this kind of setup currently 
uh, is going to work uh, and uh, if not then you know do we need to bring someone else uh, or do we need to bring someone externally and uh, you know those are the things that uh, we would evaluate i don't i think there are other startups who have definitely done a much better job of this but frankly i think um hiring externally and growing them we um we were not very aggressive in like you know we had a few changes but um i think our last leadership you know was quite stable so from covid onwards you know so most people in the senior leadership would stay at least to sort of 3 years plus with us i would say um there were many people who were you know 5 years 6 years so we didn't uh, churn around and get as many external people we uh, we tried a little bit um it was uh, especially in our initial days we tried um, it didn't necessarily work for us so then we switched more towards a promote you know internal people kind of a mindset and then support um to us so we were very involved uh, you know all three of us were very very hands on and very involved um maybe if we got an external person then maybe we we wouldn't have been so involved in everything um and uh, as i said i don't know if we that was the right choice for us maybe maybe not um at that time we felt that the internal hiring and the internal you know so initially the the first set of hires we definitely we we turned the first two years but then sort of from year 3 year 4 onwards i think we had a lot more stable uh, functional heads and most of them stayed uh, barring a few you know changes it wasn't a complete overhaul so it did work for us i guess um, so different you know and as a result of that i think we had a lot more uh, there was a there was a certain culture you know people were much nicer to each other um it was definitely known and, and still people talk about it and say that it was a very good good culture of uh internal sort of camaraderie and promotion but maybe getting an external you know person would have um uh meant that we were more you know direct in our execution and approach and uh maybe maybe faster i don't know it's uh I don't have an answer to that question. Well, hindsight, twenty twenty. Yeah, it's, it's right. hindsight. So I don't know. I mean, there's some things we did right, some things didn't work right. for us. So yeah, I don't, I don't know the right answer. As someone who was kind of managing, you said almost fourteen sub functions departments, right? I'm sure there are always fires burning. How did you think about alignment between? those short term operational fires that you need to put off one way or the other as well as kind of balancing the long term vision that one needs to achieve yeah so if the fire was you know some tech thing something broken something happened then obviously that was more a case of okay how do we fix it and how what are the sort of remedial actions and what what do we move on from from there if we felt that the fire was more of a cultural thing or it also was showing to us that this is you know uh, not scalable in the long term and we need to do something differently that is when then we would evaluate uh, the org structure point right and say that uh, what do we need to change here is it the uh, junior team not working mid management not working senior management not working is the functional other functional you know is it too siloed is it too many things happening so ha huh, so i would say the fire was a constant you know i guess the uh, thing 
um i so these are the for the internal ones the external fires were the ones where it's it's very difficult because you know the regulatory you know overnight it changes and suddenly on a friday you know rbi has announced something and you need to do something so i think those we were as a team then we would rally around and we would say okay so this has happened and i think the team used to actually generally we used to say that we are very good in a crisis and the team used to rally around and fix those fires or do whatever it was needed so and then and then that would also lead to a discussion so external fires would lead to a discussion on strategy you know this is not working that is not working um you know what do we need to do internally and externally um and uh, and also around team and people so fire fighting is part of the game i think as a founder you need to be able to uh ha huh, not be bogged down by the fire too much uh and <clears throat> uh over time i think we were able to deal with some of the things some of the very big things we were not able to deal with uh you know the the very big you know funding winter and all of that but uh, but yeah i think it this is also down to the team that the team became more and more resilient as we fought fires as we found our way through it and you know there were many fires like even on the macro side there's always something on like there was the ilfs crisis and then there was the yes bank you know bank accounts getting frozen and then there was covid and then there was you know the rbi moratorium and then there was digital lend so the so every day there was something new that would come up so i think the team had also like become quite resilient and we as founders also you know we i think it's important to show not show too much panic so that's one of the things that i think we learned is that okay if you stay calm then the others are going to stay calm so so that's the and then you know just be calm be like okay this is what has happened that's that's this is what we need to do and uh, then have a course of action on that what was your hack to remain calm and confident during those crisis moments uh one one is i would say that as founders we were quite close um so you know we would always have uh that channel of communication open that that definitely helped because you know we would uh, deal with each fire together um second personally ha huh, I, i think we learned not to panic so uh and to always show calm even if you're not calm so so that is one then the third is like how to stay calm that i think a because there's so many things that used to happen that you sort of got used to it so the threshold keeps going up you know the, the threshold of pain keeps going up right uh, so that is one uh, and you know you just get more and more resilient until something that totally kills you so whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger right that's that's definitely true but no in personally i think uh, just fitness and having um having time boundaries um you know not uh, not constantly uh, being on the job so even if there is a fire then having that kind of mindset that okay you know we we have a call and you know, it's an emergency call we do it now but then we say that okay we're going to circle back in one or two hours or whatever right so having those set how do i say next steps and time boxing it and 
uh, then saying that okay you know now it's uh, midnight and i need to sleep and you know i'll only deal with this tomorrow morning or whatever right so i think those um, that discipline definitely crept in and it was uh, it it definitely helped um, that okay no matter what you know i'm going to get my sleep even if i don't sleep but i'm going to i'm not taking calls at 3 am for example right um, and um, i think as we age and as we grow uh that really helped saying that okay i have my own uh discipline and i have my own things and and then yes okay the 8 am is when i do the call or you can call me at 7 am but not at 5 am right uh so so things like that <laughs> you mentioned culture um during the last kind of uh, you know couple responses what are your views on culture especially in a startup scenario where hopefully the startup itself is evolving quite fast right and in the case of zest it was 8 9 years that you guys were building it i'm sure there were a lots of ups and downs and so during those periods then how do you maintain the core of culture yeah um <clears throat> see the core of culture is also it evolves over time so it's uh, culture is always an evolving thing um and uh, it's actually something you can't really control it because even as co-founders you know we have we were three completely different people with three completely different backgrounds and three completely different ways of working so even when we were three people like what is the culture right so i think one of the things uh, that we did do over time so the first thing that we did when we started and uh, maybe sometimes i feel we overdid it also because we were you know a bit older founders and we had come from a startup ourselves and we had seen uh, the start that we were sort of senior level like one one level down in that startup right and so we we knew the founders and we had seen their journey up front so we also tried to learn from that and then obviously we had read all the books and all that so the first thing the first thing that we did was we wrote our vision mission statement and we had our core values so that was an inter- i don't know if other people do it in india um but before we did anything before we wrote a single line of code we actually wrote core values uh which were inspired i would say very much by you know this company that the three of us were coming from and uh, we also had two other people who were our first uh, let's say first two employees they were also from there so in a way um you know the co- the founding group was from that company so we sort of took the pros and cons from there and we sort of came up with a code um that we would then we started passing on uh, to our new hires and uh, we started building that culture how much they understood it or didn't understand i don't know uh, but ha so in in effect we did have that and we would we would you know then we would have an induction process and a performance evaluation and as i said maybe we overdid it and maybe people you know were not used to it here so much so so then however i think through covid is when we started having this chat about culture a lot more and uh, it was also an interesting point because uh it was very tough as i said there was literally fires burning you know all over and also emotionally you know people were all going through trauma and uh then suddenly the 
funding boom happened and you know people were getting poached uh, left right and center and that is actually when i feel that the culture aspect you know really uh, started to come about and we also um, did some work on it so we um, you know got an external you know consultant to help us and she helped us do a culture audit and you know the senior sort of 20 30 people we all sat down for a few hours and uh, we talked about what culture is and what what it means and what our core values are and do we still believe in the core values that you know we had written uh, four five years ago and whether it's relevant or not so i think that was was an interesting aspect and uh, we changed actually a few of those things at that time uh, some of you know some of those things were not being uh, understood as well or it meant something to me versus it meant something else to the other person so that i felt was a much more interesting uh, you know exercise uh, where the team itself uh, came up with the culture and and actually ironically i meant it's very funny i said the partnership you know thing first and where the team actually started saying that actually you know what are we good at uh, and it was a very soul searching kind of exercise where um that and most people say actually we believe that zest is good at partnerships and zest has actually built a brand uh, through its partnerships and uh, so that i thought was quite interesting and uh, but having said that i think yeah these are interesting uh, conversations to have um but you know and and what happened in 2022 across the world and in 2023 where all the even the large you know tech companies everyone used to talk about culture and mission and vision and then suddenly there were layoffs and all of that so <clears throat> putting my cfo hat on i would say that ultimately culture has to be uh in line with your business objectives right so that i think you know maybe um, may, maybe we missed a trick there maybe i don't know but um, yeah i mean there were some some good things that that came out of it and during covid and you know that year when we were all working remotely and there were we were hiring so many new people because um, everyone was hiring and there was so much and there was so much attrition and you had to sort of keep your tribe together i think those uh, you know 2020 2021 it definitely helped us uh, in 2022 um, maybe you know uh, because we were uh, we could have been faster maybe it stopped us from being faster uh, we could have you know and even as founders maybe we didn't uh, take some very very tough calls that we could have taken i don't know like so again this is the hindsight you know point that keeps coming up but no in general it was a very very uh, culture based on camaraderie you know mutual respect uh we as founders definitely tried to create um an environment of trust and uh, people definitely you know gave an avenue for people to think about zest um as a career and not just a job so in that sense yeah i think we definitely um did a decent job of it <laughs> i would say what advice would you give to the priya founding zest money on day 1 god <laughs> i don't know this is a very tough one uh, yeah i think uh, the first thing i would say it's a marathon and a sprint at the same time uh, <laughs> so pace yourself and um, yeah and keep your 
strength and keep your own you know cool and calm first you know i would say that um to me personally and um yeah i think i think obviously the last uh, last year has been very tough but uh, as i said when i started just for me it was this insane conviction in this product and this idea and uh, that i think still remains like i still think uh, that that product you know had had a place in this in this ecosystem and uh, in this country and uh, so yeah i don't know i don't know what advice i would give i don't know if uh, if i would have actually done anything differently i don't know <laughs> it's tough to say yeah can you tell us maybe five things over the life of zest that you all did right and maybe you are proud of yeah so i think we started as i said the conviction around the product and the idea but it was also this overarching belief that uh, credit should be done differently in india that um just because someone doesn't have a credit history doesn't mean that they are not credit worthy uh you know uh, the digital experience which as i mentioned when we were thinking about the product everything was extremely paper based and you know even yesterday i was my bank made me sign some documents and i had to sign like five different same document five times on every page you know like so i we was to really question all that and you know that whole idea of digitizing financial services and digitizing uh, credit uh, which was the fundamental you know need that we were solving we i think we were able to solve that very well we were able to uh, in fact you know we we saw that so well that we were emulated so much uh, and we created a category uh, so that i think you know and yeah looking back in 2014 when uh, i wasn't even sure if i wanted to do this and lizzy wasn't sure if she wanted to do this you know from there uh, to now you know 2024 you know 10 years later to have built it and uh, to have seen the journey that's quite insane um second is the partnership approach the level of partnerships that we were able to crack um and uh, with the level of funding you know so as i said if you look at the large payment players and we were able to we were sort of i always felt we were punching above our weight maybe maybe too much sometimes but um so so that i think you know the partnership approach worked for us and uh, we were able to build a true platform a credit platform which um, we were the largest and no one no one had that um the brand definitely again we spent very little on brand marketing uh, i was very stingy uh, in terms of the marketing spends and um, we were able to build a brand that is still you know in the papers for good or for bad and uh, yeah the culture and uh, definitely i would say um we were able to create a lot of value in the ecosystem um maybe we were not able to capture a lot of that value that we created uh i think in general for startups in india uh capturing value is going to be the next uh stage of evolution uh because we i feel that you know we've kind of uh, been giving away a lot of our technology and our product uh, for free and we need to be able to start getting into that mindset of capturing value but yeah we were able to create value we were able to create uh, something uh differentiated something unique uh something that you know people did uh, talk about 
um and as one of my friends was telling me you know you were very lucky you got success in your first you know startup and not how many people are able to actually uh, fly from london and settle down and you know create something uh, that was that became big at at one point in time so yeah i think those are things that um, that definitely is uh, you know if i look back and to your question uh, advice to my self in 2014 2015 like Huh, at that time we just wanted to go live like we just wanted to launch the product and see what happens so from there to uh, 2022 23 is quite interesting what key lessons do you think are crucial for fintech startups to succeed in today's market based on all of your experience with zest at this point in time i think you're yeah, definitely this point about capturing value and um, i've been you know reading a lot listening to a lot of podcasts and this this point about capturing value is the key point so um and you have to do it from the beginning uh, so as uh, as founders i think uh, yeah we we need to price our product better you know we always wanted to uh, our whole approach or our own thesis that we want to do just based pricing but maybe we didn't do it as well as we should have we had only started taking baby steps uh, towards it so uh, you know so fa- and i would say this to all founders to all startup founders look at your pricing you know are you pricing your product correct and uh, look at your costs and you know are you are you are you basically managing your costs well so that's the first thing that we as an ecosystem uh, have definitely not been looking at some of these fundamental you know business aspects right um for whatever reason but i do feel that ha huh, this mindset of creating value not just in terms of valuation but real value right and i think uh, that is a mindset shift that maybe we also didn't have right so in the sense that as i said as a it's it's very easy to get carried away because in the beginning you only want to launch your product then you launch your product then you see whether it's going to work then when it starts working then you want to grow so all of these are natural progressions but i do think that yeah maybe the second you know uh, this phase of uh, founders from 2024 onwards would also then have at the back of the mind that am i capturing that value and am i creating value for my shareholders that's one second i would say come coming to fintech yeah regulation is key uh, not to say that we were uh, not cognizant of that right as i said we built everything uh, at zest in uh, cognizance of uh, taking cognizance of regulation always being compliant with regulation we always uh, tried to uh, think uh, as to how the regulator would think uh, but having said that you still you know get caught off guard and get caught up in cycles uh, so that i think yeah i mean and this is also i would say to investors is that you know fintech is uh, ultimately a regulated play right so um and so investors should also be cognizant of that and uh, know that you know there might be certain period of uh, regulatory uncertainty you know the licensing might take time or whatever so i i think yeah fintech um needs bit more patience it's a long game it requires patience i think uh, founders also need to be a bit more patient investors need to be a bit more patient and regulators i would really request uh, more regulatory clarity and less un- uncertainty i think that's what you know any business uh, person would say uh 
yeah i think those are the two things um and uh, definitely build for the long term and see uh see if the product is differentiated i mean all of those are sort of entrepreneurship one on one but i i'd say in the context of uh 2024 i would say these are the two important things makes a ton of sense um adjust of course amongst the three co-founders uh you and lizzy are women it's kind of relatively uncommon of course to have more women in the founding team than men how did you think about diversity inclusion overall at zest given kind of it naturally started out at the top at you know a diverse um, a diverse company to start with yeah no okay, so so uh... one is that because of uh, two women founders i think uh, we used to get a lot of women uh, who used to you know want to work with us so that by definition i think uh, we were a bit more attractive and then um, from a culture perspective and i mentioned this you know 3 am 4 am thing and all that right so also maybe because we were a bit older and uh, we had come from a very sort of western uh work environment um so as a result of that that culture was always a bit uh different and bit more professional maybe and less of a you know college dropout and dorm <laughs> type culture maybe um so that was always more conducive to women and you know uh so it was always i would say from the outset we were set up like that but not by design just just pick as a because of how we were but uh i think as we grew we definitely uh you know uh, started realizing that there weren't as many women in the leadership so uh, as the functions grew and as the you know team the senior leadership team expanded we we then realized that you know certainly in certain functions there weren't as many women so that's when i think we started making bit more of an effort and uh, during covid definitely we did a lot around this and um we it, because of the flexibility and uh, remote working was there for everyone and uh, so all of those things i think helped but uh, it was a topic of discussion but i think it's 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 even for us it wasn't something that i can say that we solved you know so it's definitely something that uh, is tough is is definitely tough because there aren't that many women you know leaders and um, also women leaders need a different approach and uh, different you know style of working and all of that as well so we did do much better than a lot of other people but i don't think we did enough uh, and uh, there's definitely more that you know we we could have done did it ever feel to you that it was harder to do what you do being a woman i don't know uh because i don't know any different right so um i think i think this is something that you just have to accept as a person and uh, definitely i think you know look for me i've been an engineer i've been in finance i've always been in very very male dominated uh sectors so i've never thought about this uh, so much and uh, personally i think and uh, a friend of mine actually posted something on this on linkedin a few months ago 
and this concept of gender neutral is sort of in my head so i've always operated like that i think like that especially in a work environment um it's very difficult to say how other people think right so i think of myself as a, you know in a workspace uh, as a gender you know neutral person right it doesn't occur to me sitting there that oh i'm a woman and i should act like this and i should do this right so it's a very analytical and strategy and all of that now how the other person reacts to you whether they are used to uh working with you or partnering with you that's their conditioning that's their you know you can't change that the only thing i guess as you grow older and as you grow senior you become more and more cognizant of the fact that it is not just about you know you doing your work and you giving your best and all that so you know that you know how the external person or external party perceives you is also a component of you know what you are able to uh, do or whether or not you are able to meet your business objectives and all of that so that i think yeah it's a it's a learning it's a i don't know uh, in sometimes in some cases it works some cases it just doesn't work and maybe the reason for that is uh, some gender bias that the other person has um, it's very difficult to say because even that person because it's a bias that person also doesn't necessarily know it or acknowledge it i think the only thing that has happened is that i have started becoming a bit more conscious of that i have started becoming that yeah there might be a gender bias whereas you know if as a as a job as an employee i don't think i ever thought about it or as an engineer as someone who went into the iit and all of that i never thought about it right because my upbringing was always yeah you write the exam it's the the guy sitting next to me is writing the same exam i did well i got in you know all of that so i think as you grow older and when you realize that business is about partnerships business is about working together uh you no company is uh, doing something on their own completely right so everything has different components and there are different people and so how people react to you is something that you then have to start accepting that there might be people who are not reacting to you the right way or maybe they're taking something that you said the wrong way for whatever reason so if they say something then or if you perceive something then you try to solve it if if you don't if i mean if if you don't even understand what they're saying or how they're reacting then you can't do anything about it and you just move on um so i'm also learning i don't think i am um very good at it um it is also a transition for me to understand that as you grow older uh, certain biases i think most women are learning to navigate through that so it does exist that's for sure um for whatever reason um so yeah it's a it's something that we need to i think if we bring more awareness to it and people start thinking about it then i think at least it's kind of step one uh because a lot of it is a bias you don't even know it exists you don't know that uh, you may be thinking of uh, you you are reacting to a certain person differently like if i say something versus if the same thing is said by someone else and if you're reacting or perceiving me and my competence differently then that's a bias right so yeah makes sense as i think about financial services companies and of course now more fintech companies which has a big financial services angle to it anyways 
makes much more intuitive sense for them to have a CFO almost from the get-go. As you think about other technology companies compared to fintech companies, what is your advice in terms of when should a company hire a CFO? Yeah, no, just, I would say CFO um, or not, but definitely have a strong finance function. Um, if not from day one, then at least from day two onwards. And um, definite for any business, uh, you know, be it small business or whatever, um, definitely invest in having, you know, good finance function, making sure your taxes are in line and your books are in line and your revenue recognition is done right. I just think that some of those things, if you get right uh, from the beginning, it uh, really helps. Um, I think for a business like ours, um, there was so much complexity. There was so much complexity. Uh, and I feel that, you know, there was so much that we could have done more. Um, so, you know, like internal audit, internal compliance, some of these things um, that uh, we could have invested in a lot more. Um, you know, even though we were a relatively small uh, company. So as a fintech and as a startup, definitely I would say that um, if not a CFO, but at least get a strong sort of, you know, VP finance or director of finance early on and uh, definitely invest in uh, good auditors. So obviously in our case, you know, given that um, we had global investors. So from almost like day one, we had the big four. Uh, so in that sense, it, it brings that rigor, right? So, you know, that, uh, you're being looked at a certain way and then at least you have that annual compliance, but, um, definitely, yeah, it's, it's something that, uh, we should, we should think about CFO again, every company has a different CFO need also. Uh, and, um, ev and if you, if you are a listed company, then you have, you need a different type of a CFO. If you are, you know, a private company, you, you want a different CFO. So, but I think definitely I would say that uh, CFOs should be, uh, or any finance person should be more strategic in their thinking. Because I definitely find uh, that uh, uh, because of most of the people who go into finance function come from uh, CA background or, you know, audit background. Uh, so they tend to be like very, very siloed. And it's a siloed approach towards things that they'll sit in their corner and, you know, they'll only ask a question um, if the auditor needs it or if they need it for certain, you know, bookkeeping things. Uh, whereas I think they should, uh, in the immortal words of Cheryl, uh, you know, uh, we should we should get a seat on, at the table, right? So I think the finance folks should definitely be involved. Uh, they should definitely look at what the business is doing where it's going um and uh, i i used to encourage my team to definitely you know um get more involved in the in in the biz dev for example right who are we doing business with who are our vendors who are our partners uh get get involved get get that understanding so those are things that don't get siloed i would say even at a junior level that's what uh, people tend to do they just sit there and they just like look at their excel sheet and don't look up and i don't think that's the right thing to do Makes sense. Uh, Zest money wasn't an easy road at all. And uh, a lot has been written in papers and I'm sure there are multiple different sides of the story. So without getting into that, 
um, I'm sure you had to make a lot of tough, unpopular decisions for the greater good of the company. Tell us, uh, how did you think about those decisions and what leadership qualities are essential in such wartime scenarios, especially when you mentioned that almost every single year there was something macro happening, something the regulator might be doing, something internally might be happening, right? And so how, how as a co-founder, as a CFO, as an operator, how do you think about that and how do you deal with those tough decisions? Yeah, I think um, being unemotional and being calm is uh, super important. Um, and um, yeah, so I think I think that's number one. Second is uh, to have a bit more sense of, okay, um, in the short term, what do we need to do in the long term? Uh, what do we need to do? Uh, and um, if in the long term we think that... Uh, you know, this particular strategy or where we are is uh, not going to work and therefore what what is the short-term uh, thing that we need to do to sort of navigate our way out of it. Um, so, and then some of those decisions are also quite tough in the sense that as a founder, uh, as I said, you know, we you always, you believe so much in your vision and mission and you you live it and you become it and you, you're own uh, life and your purpose is defined by it um so you know at, at a time when things are really really um going against then it it uh, it goes against you personally as well right because it's not just a job so i think yeah at, at that point i think how do you be unemotional and uh, not to say that i was unemotional like that i that i was able to separate that um, but I think uh, maybe good, you know, entrepreneurs or good business people are able to separate that um, emotion from the business decision. Maybe that's uh, that's the way to succeed in this. And but as a founder, it's very tough because uh, up until that point, you know, you are the the product, you are the thing, you are the company, you are everything. And then suddenly you're not. And then how do you how do you deal with that? So, um, um, yeah, I don't know uh, if uh, if <laughs> if it worked out in the end. Um, but yeah, I, I think that is my biggest learning that as a founder or as a business person, uh, and maybe founders, you know, the we as sort of venture backed founders, we don't think of ourselves as business people. We think of ourselves as founders. You know, it's a different entity to how uh, normal uh, business people or normal promoters, let's call it here in India, think. And um, yeah, in my opinion, they are very uh, unemotional or very sort of cut and dry maybe. And maybe we are too, you know, emotional and too, um, yeah, and may maybe in emotions we make the wrong decisions or maybe we... Uh, take short-term decisions or long-term decisions that are not right in the long term. So um, my, yeah, I think my learning is to be unemotional uh, in and calm. I, th I think in a time time of crisis, I think that's when you have to, so you be, be a little bit detached um, and be able to see, um, because yeah, business strategy is complex. And, you know, when, when your company is, you know, large enough and big enough and there are many different stakeholders and 
everyone then suddenly has a different you know viewpoint and different uh, things so yeah i would say the first thing is to be unemotional and then then see what needs to be done and uh then obviously you need to manage the stakeholders build consensus you know uh and then execute on the strategy so without getting into any specifics but yeah that's i think my learning makes sense did you ever think that being a co-founder you were able to do things that a hired cfo might not be able to pull off yeah and definitely so because as i said i also had the dual role of cfo and ceo so i was always saw the other side also all right so whereas if you are a hired you know let's say cfo uh, then maybe you don't see the other aspects right so you would see okay this is my function these are the things that roll into me i will only look at this um whereas as a co-founder you know that the bug stops with you and uh, whether or not the other side reports to you or not you will then do whatever it takes to resolve that issue or make sure it happens so the the only flip side i would say to being a co-founder and then uh, a professional cfo is maybe i think um, as a co-founder that emotional thing is always there right as i mentioned so and uh, whereas as a cfo i think a cfo a professional cfo might be more uh, cut and dry and be like no this is what is right and um, maybe that person can be the one who who can separate the emotion better so as a co-founder definitely uh, the probability of um, it it solves lot of issues because you can see the big picture you know what the board is saying you know what the external because you know i'm involved in everything so i know what the merchants are saying lenders are saying or the team is saying but then because you're so involved that maybe sometimes uh, you're not able to act as decisively or make um, some of the you know the more financial decisions maybe i don't know uh, that a professional would do the only thing is maybe um, whether a professional would then stick around you know because cfo's generally um, they also tend to leave and and all that so those are other aspects as well but yeah i think for me um, there were too many roles uh, mixed together all the time right so it's tough for me to say because i also haven't you know i've i've only played the cfo role as a co-founder so that's my it's my guess that that would be the case priya what motivates you to keep going now i, I think i'm just uh, taking bit of you know time off but also enjoying this phase because um i feel that um, you know you should unlearn uh, a lot of things and then relearn uh so i'm uh, i'm sort of enjoying that uh, piece and uh, trying to look at things from a slightly different you know context and a different perspective um so that's motivating and uh, meeting you know people having these kind of conversations is also quite interesting but yeah generally i also feel that um, um life is you know long and you've got to do other things and uh, for me right now the focus is on uh, trying to find you know other avenues and other areas that excite me so that's what motivates me if you were to do a startup again and become a serial founder what maybe one or two things that you would do differently this time 
I think managing capital structure and you know your business model in a manner that um, it doesn't require constant capital. I think that would be my biggest thing because obviously in lending and we knew that from get go, right? Like lending is ultimately a balance sheet play. It requires debt. It requires and debt requires equity. So you are in a constant cycle. So yeah, maybe I feel that capital structure um, is is tough and constant capital raising is is definitely tough and especially when you and there is a business cycle and you know hitting that business cycle wall is very tough. So one is definitely I would like to do is um, uh, not be caught up in that and uh, do that differently. Uh, so either do something that doesn't require as much capital or if if or if I do something that requires as much capital then solve for it up front and you know think about it more strategically or differently. Um, I think we were maybe a bit too naive about it uh, you know at Zest and um, we thought we could solve it as we went along and that wasn't the case so that i think yeah capital and fundraising is is key uh, to startups and any business venture um secondly is the control aspect huh? so uh, founders definitely you know we should uh, try and control our destiny um, which is which can be done by as i said capturing value or being in that value capturing mindset um it's easier said than done uh, i don't know the answer on how to do it but i do think that this line like really stuck with me that you know um uh, that you should do something where you you create value for yourselves as well so that i think uh, is important to me um rest yeah i'm still figuring out uh, but for, yeah i think these two these two are i would say the more important points very cool. Makes a ton of sense. Uh, I think uh, it's time we now move on to our last section of lightning round. Uh, it should be fun. should be uh, kind of different than all the heavy lifting you have been doing so far. Um, all it needs is I'm going to ask you some quick questions and I need immediate responses from you. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, let's start. Uh, sweet or savory? Oh, sweet. <laughs> Books or podcasts? Actually, these these days podcasts. Okay, are you more of a thinker or a doer? Uh, thinker. <laughs> introvert or extrovert? I am an introvert uh, with slight extroversion. All right, extroversion. What's so. your guilty pleasure? Chocolate. <laughs> How does someone impress you? Oh, yeah intellect competence yeah intellectual okay. yeah stimulation <laughs> if not a cfo what would you be a ceo maybe yeah a ceo <laughs> <laughs> no but actually on a lighter note titles don't matter i, I think uh, yeah titles are a bit made up so as long as you do something that you enjoy it doesn't matter okay if you can be CFO of any other company, which company would that be and why? Um, I don't know of a company, but I've been thinking about this. And if I were to take up a CFO role, then I would like to be part of a company that, uh, let's say, goes on to do an IPO or, you know, something like that. Uh, because as a CFO, I would uh, definitely like to take that journey. 
um and uh, you know with zest i was able to see a certain journey and i would like to see that uh, that journey so so yeah uh, that might be interesting but i don't know other than that i i don't know if i can name a company or if there is any specific company that i have in mind okay ideal place for you to retire uh i don't know <laughs> goa maybe <laughs> okay uh item number 1 on your bucket list right now uh so a friend of mine has been calling me incessantly and uh, asking me to sign up for this everest base camp trip this year wow so i am thinking about it it is not yet on my bucket list i would say she's trying her best uh, so maybe i might do it <laughs> very cool if you could uninvent something what would it be uninvent wow uh, no nothing nothing inventions are good all inventions lead us forward most of them okay who is your role model personally or professionally so i don't have um, one or two role models it's a mix of uh, people and uh, definitely I, i think through these podcasts i am really enjoying listening to these podcasts and uh, of late i heard the warren buffett podcasts and charlie munger and all of those guys and um, so yeah, i would say those are role models but yeah i think it's i don't have one i'm just trying to learn from many people and i'm i also in a phase where i'm meeting lots of people and having different conversations so i'm just uh, trying to be a sponge and learn from everyone so not not one single person as a role model all right one thing that can make you 10 times more productive switching off my phone <laughs> makes sense and what's uh, the last one describe yourself in three words i'd say resilient i'd say creative problem solving person and uh, yeah a good and loyal friend i would say very cool uh well priya this uh, brings us to the end of our episode thank you so much for all the time and all the candor with which you have shared your heart uh, much appreciate your time thank you so much such amazing questions and i really enjoyed myself and enjoyed my time thank you for having me that brings us to the end of this episode we hope you'll find at least one nugget that is beneficial to you as always thanks for listening to strategy of finance if you enjoy the show please rate and review us on youtube apple podcast spotify or our website www.strategyoffinance.com your comments will make us better you can also follow us on linkedin and twitter and share the word in your network so other people in the finance community can also benefit be sure to tune in next week for another engaging conversation until then this is rohit agarwal and remember to learn grow and inspire <laughs>